0: Welcome everybody. I'm Kevin Miller. This is the Ziegler show inspired by the grandfather of inspiration himself, Zig Ziegler. Our focus here is you and your personal development. The way to have more tomorrow is to become more today. So we bring you the best of today's world influencers and discover how we can all apply new and classic methodologies of personal growth to our lives. In this episode, our focus is reclaiming extra time, attention, and peace from that thief in your pocket. Uh- there's a relatively new thief that is stealing our time, our attention and literally our peace. It's crept up on us. Even a decade ago, you'd never stand in line and see everyone staring at a little screen in their hand, right? They were looking around, noticing the world around them, maybe talking with someone. I mean, at lunch, you just talked with whoever you were with. The only distractions being other people in the restaurant or possibly a phone call to your cell phone. But now we find a constant companion on our smartphone that we as a culture rarely ignore for more than five to 10 minutes at a time. If that, I mean, the smartphone made a seemingly benign entrance into our lives but has now commanded a literal cultural shift what started with text messages has now ballooned over 2.2 million apps enough to keep our attention 24 hours a day though it's just a handful of social media apps that command the lion's share and the question is how are you doing how am i doing Do you control your device, the time, or is it controlling you? So I went to the Ziegler audience and asked them, have you done anything to limit your smartphone usage? And have you found yourself being distracted by it? Most cited steps they're taking to limit their time, and many admitted to the very real struggle and how they're finding it's much more than just a time waster, but a literal depth of life culprit. So I brought an expert on the show with me, Cal Newport, our computer science professor and best-selling author from show 703. The conversation went immediately into some major issues affecting us at the hands of big business who makes money the more they get us looking at these screens. Uh, It was inspiring to hear what some people have gained back now that they put limits on their phones and they tell us how. And you're gonna get some great ideas from this show on those things how you can better manage your smartphone usage and what the positive payoff truly is uh, and you can also find cal at calnewport.com I encourage you to do so so we're going to dive in with your comments and Cal Newport's Sage council right after I give gratitude to our esteemed Ziggler show sponsors All right, Cal, well, to kick the show off, as I stand here in my my office slash studio with my bookshelf behind me, my wife sat in the chair that I've got my leg propped up on yesterday saying that she thinks our 14-year-old son, who has a phone that a a sibling, an older sibling, gave him uh, as a cast-off, and he's got, uh, you know, he'll look up stuff. Hey, Dad, can I look that up or play Spotify, play music on it? Sure, but we limit uh, the things he has on it. But she said, I think uh, he's starting cross-country. He's doing some things out of the house that we need to get a phone uh, package for him, you know, get a cell phone package. And I'm looking over here at this book, yeah. digital Minimalism, And I've got really honey, do we really need it? So she took the book home. She says, okay, I'm going to read it. I said, the boys have looked at it. They know let's talk about this, but it was just kind of that real world. Here it is. And, and her, and she is a minimalist. She doesn't use the stuff much, but she's thinking, Hey, he's, th- he's like the only one in his group who does not have this. And again, we're back to that as we start to read through these comments here, how much it brought me back to just the social pressure of being the one idiot in this seemingly in the Starbucks line, like I've been trying to be now, who doesn't pull up a smartphone and just stands there. And it looks like I'm the only one who has nothing else to do, huh?
1: Yeah. Well, it's a, I mean, it's a common story. It's also a common issue. I mean, I I think at the crux of the problem, we're having as a culture with this technology right now is that we keep making this jump from the practical to the practically unlivable. So we go wow. from, I need to be able to text my parents when I'm done with cross country practice to I'm up at 3am playing Fortnite. Right. And it, this is the way it's been packaged. I mean, especially the social media companies, this, this was their strategy for a long time. They've shifted their strategy recently, but their strategy for a long time was mix it all together. You're either anti all the possible benefits of technology or you're all in. And there's not an in-between. So it's either like you're a phone user, you're a social media user, or you know, you're the weirdo and you're in a cabin. <laughs> uh, and, and this has been the real problem, which is why you know, I talk about in the book this yeah. sense of our current relationship with technology. It feels like we fell backwards into it and we look up one day saying, well, wait a second. Why, why am I up at 3AM? You remember you know, three years ago, oh, I need to send text messages. This would be nice to have a phone. And then you wonder three years later. Why am I spending five hours and 20 minutes a day looking at it? Yeah. And so it's like being able to pull apart what is it that we need to do with the tech? What service is it providing? How do we maximize that service without it going beyond those contours? That seems to be the key. The minimalism is because that's where we get in trouble is the innocent things yeah. bring us into to that whole ecosystem.
0: Yeah. Okay, well, I, I could keep going on that, but let me just – I'll let our, our listeners here who commented, hopefully they'll bring up some of the points that I'm hoping we'll get to. Uh, Alejandro here, he says he erased Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat, which those have got to be the top culprits, aren't they, primarily? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, he said too much noise, no real value added. I left only Kindle uh, for downtimes, Audible for commute and traveling, and WhatsApp is already as important to him as, the biz, as his business email. So it survived the cut as well. Okay, so, but I, I appreciate that he pulled those off. And I looked up some stats on apps you know, that there are, and there's you know, however many million apps. I actually read it in one of the intros. I, I looked that up to do for one of the intros to one of the shows we've already done with you. And, but then it did say that those top running social media platforms are the ones that gobble up so much, uh, the majority of our time. And, and the question was to, and I, I have never seen this amongst your stuff, but it's, it's almost hard not to feel like we got to vilify those, but then a lot of people, including me use those for business, but then it's almost got me to the point of, am I, am I, am I, do I, should I feel bad for using this for business and adding to the problem that's out there of drawing people into it?
1: Well, that's something that people have been asking me. It's kind of an interesting question. I mean, just from an effectiveness point of view, I mean, there's no doubt that the tools that social media platforms offer to business users are incredibly powerful. I mean, there's a reason why Facebook is worth $500 billion. I mean, the, the, its ability to do pinpoint marketing is essentially the marketer's dream. This is yeah. what they've been dreaming about as long as this industry uh, has existed. It's incredibly quantifiable. Uh, it works really well. So I never... I never begrudge a business utility argument. It's, uh, of course it works. Wow. Uh, I, do, I do get the thing that does give me concern about that is the obvious point that it's easy to allow the business use case. Oh, my business is doing this pinpointed advertisement to be the excuse that allows you to be in the Starbucks line you know, looking at your own Instagram, which again. Yeah. But there is this larger question, and I'm not quite sure what the answer is. But there, you know, there, there's, a, there's an increasing number of people, especially when I do interviews with people who are, let's say, in the health space. Mm -hmm. that's where this is first first kind of coming to a head they say i have these audiences i work with them on health i want them to be healthier i want them to thrive i reach a lot of them through social media social media is making them unhealthy that's not that's not obvious uh it's not obvious what to do here now i've been writing these articles recently for my blog on what i call long tail social media which is the rise of these more organic communities, social media communities that do not exist on the exploitative platforms, but use custom software, or smaller software packages. And they're not huge audiences. You can't reach a billion people on these platforms. But it actually turns out for a lot of businesses, they don't need access to a billion people. They, they need the right 10,000 people engaged with what's yeah. going on. So there's some interesting things happening, some alternatives arising where you can harness the power of the Internet to connect with people across great distances, which is great, being able to do that while stepping away from do we have to do this within the ecosystem of three or four companies that also have this fiduciary pressure to try to exploit as much time and attention as possible from the users and take a cut along the way. And so there's this is the resistance that interests me. The long tail of social media, the custom platforms, the small platforms, the getting back to what originally made the Internet exciting before you had three or four companies come and try to consolidate the whole Internet within their giant server farms. Back to that That energetic, emergent, grassroots, homegrown, ad hoc, big personality, a little bit rough around the edges—you know, flashing fonts, HTML page, internet—which I miss.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, on you're talking about business platforms. I want to call out my dad, Dan Miller. He's got a big audience. They just did a big switch for his 48 days groups, and he says this: we switched all of our 48 days groups which is a big part of their business, uh, admittedly to their own mighty network. So mighty networks, if folks don't know is, uh, uh, a long time ago, it was the founder of Ning. She now created mighty networks, great uh, social platform, kind of a private social network. And a lot of folks are looking at that. So he, and he said, so I don't have to wade through all the Facebook distractions and intrusions. And I guess he could say the same thing for his audience. And yet it's still for the people over here who are vastly monetizing Facebook, we can look at the mighty networks or look at, you know, an alternative in an altruistic fashion. But when it comes down to that, and it's going to cut into our dollars, I understand. I understand the angst of that. And let me point out too. you, you said that you talked about the health industry, which I'm in health and wellness. I'm, I'm heavily invested in. And there you've got a lot of health and wellness tends towards an aesthetic. A lot of it does, not all of it. Um, I'm in the functional medicine category. It doesn't necessarily do that. But a lot of the people, even the people that uh, I've interviewed on here, there's a lot of aesthetic aspects. And when you get into that, I'm going to just give it a a kind phrase of eye candy that again, draws people in. And there's things that I would say, gosh, it's health and wellness, but I don't want my teen son. I don't need to be looking at it actually. Yeah. And there's more rubs. Well, so I think
1: what's interesting, I mean, that's true. The sort of Instagram culture, for example, around health and wellness mm-hmm. is interesting. And functional medicine is an interesting space. I mean, one of the, the public conversations I had about exactly this issue is with Mark Hyman on his podcast. Oh, also. beautiful. Yeah, we really a, got into it. I'm a it. fan. Yeah. Um, and he's really, you know, he's, he's, he had the exact same question. He's thinking about it. Um, but from a business perspective, there's also an interesting trend that's happening. So I profiled Mindy Networks. I think they're a great example. Okay. What seems to be happening, if you look at the end user of social media, as they become more sophisticated with the Internet, they become more familiar with the Internet. The power of network effects is diminishing. So if you're early Facebook, one of the big things you offer to a new user who doesn't know much about what is social media, what I'm going to do on it is, hey, everyone you've ever known is on here. So you're going to be able to find you know, random people, your old roommates. You can see what they're up to. It's kind of novel. That was sort of the catch that brought people in, like, oh, maybe I want to see what's going on there. The modern, sophisticated Internet user is not so interested in connecting to everyone they've ever known. They want to connect to the, the small group of people that's really interesting to them. They want, maybe they're plugged into the functional medicine community. They want to be in a world with other people who are really in the functional medicine and where the experts are, or they're really into a particular type of cinema. They want to use the Internet to be able to find other people, who are into that cinema, right? And they might be spread around the world. The internet can bring them together. That's, that's a, a group they can be really engaged in. Who cares if there's another billion people accessible? Once you get rid of the benefit then of having everyone you've ever known on the network, the use case for the major networks begins to diminish. Okay, and People are looking for the right people to connect to, interesting people to connect to. They're looking for stimulation, for connection. Uh, now suddenly smaller networks become more interesting. Now, suddenly, networks that cost money becomes tractable which completely changes the dynamics. A lot of those mighty networks you know you pay you pay three or four dollars or five dollars, or I talked about a, a small business network that it 's uh, five hundred dollars a year. but that friction the people love it because it, it, the people there 're serious they're, they're, they yeah. 're there for a reason they 're really engaged in it it 's really high quality connections and so I mean people are getting way more benefit out of Connections with a small group of highly curated people that for them, then they are being able to access their old college roommate on the network. So that's why I think the future is heading towards these long tails is I don't need to talk to everybody. I want to talk to the right people. And, and that's something that does not require 500 million users.
0: So are we looking at a, gosh, it's a, it's a, maybe, maybe a little hard comparison, but the the Walmart effect of here's, if we take Facebook for the net social networks of being the place for the masses, but what it does, because it becomes a little more or a lot more shallow and vanilla and not depth and rich and value, we're going to have more, can I call them boutiques over here? that are going to have value. Is that where you're saying, like you said, the long tail, but that's where you're seeing the future is going to gravitate towards. We're going to have these segments out here with, who are looking for more value jump out. Okay.
1: Yeah. I think it's going to be more like what happened to the TV networks when cable had its rise. Right. Right. It's, you know, I could wait for whatever it was Saturday evening sports and ABC, but now I have ESPN. Yeah. And I can watch sports center every morning. I think we're going to see, which is actually a return to the way the internet was originally designed which was much more peer-to-peer, much more decentralized, which was the way it was in the early days before a, a small number of companies tried to consolidate the whole thing. Oh, I'm interested in poker. I want to find an organic community out there, of poker enthusiasts, and they're really into it. And maybe I actually pay a little bit to be part of this network because we're getting hardcore on strategies and trying to work out our statistical profiles. And I care a lot about poker, and I spend hours in this particular group. You know, Now I'm getting a lot of value out of the internet. It, it, yeah, I don't need a network that also has... Five hundred million other users on it. So uh, more niche networks, more niche websites, more niche homegrown ways to connect with people. They're a lot more focused. And I think for business owners, I'm seeing a lot of people who are like your dad moving their communities out of Facebook groups yeah. because they don't control it. They're, they're, these conversations now have you know, unrelated Facebook conversations being interleaved with the discussions that are going on in the group. Everything is owned by Facebook. The users are being monetized. There's, there's, there's concerns about privacy and security. And they're finding, well, maybe I want my ID networks. A, a custom network There's a nice app. Maybe I can even charge a little bit for it. It's my space. The users on there are here just to be a part of that community. And maybe you lose some of the fringe users that maybe uh, will, will casually walk into your Facebook group because it's, it's easy to do, but the users that remain are much more engaged. I'm seeing a lot of people moving that way. Yeah. If they have dedicated audiences... The audiences are happy to have a dedicated space.
0: Goodness. Okay. Back to poker. Was that hypothetical or was that literal? I was just coming up. I'm sure it exists. No, I was asking if you were interested in it, you, were, you sold it too well. Uh, if that was your interest or just a, an example. So an yeah, I was example. just, I was just thinking okay. of an example, but <laughs> was uh, good. I'm a terrible poker. Player. <laughs> Me, too. <laughs> Me too. Uh, well, back to what we talked about of, of, that, that concern of as a business, are we inadvertently drawing people into social media where from a health standpoint, we'd not want to have them. Uh, Brian here, he, he posted, he says, as I look at this question on my phone while I'm on Facebook, LOL. He says, yeah, he says, I have to do time blocks and have built in times once or twice daily to view emails and social media. The most effective things I have done is to put on the uh, do not disturb from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. Uh, The second thing is to turn the sound off. So you're not tempted to look when it dings so simple, yet very effective for me. And we're going to hit a bunch of others that talk about similar things of a lot of them about just turning the sound on. And now we're just talking about behavioral psychology of what are the things we can do that don't draw us. I guess those are some simple relevant fixes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, I would also recommend that he takes the apps off his phone. I mean, once he's already scheduled and doing a social media check, which is great, then you might as well schedule those checks to be on your desktop computer. So you really don't have the temptation. That's why I have the chapter about how social media professionals use social media. They have these times where they check in. They also have very uh, sophisticated searches they do. They know what they're going to do when they log in. Now, typically, the professionals are monitoring, let's say, the social media presence of a given company or brand. But they have a, a series of very set and sophisticated searches. They go in, bam, 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 bam. What's going on? What's the coverage? What do I need to know? Uh, they often use tools like TweetDeck or things that are even more sophisticated so they can really filter these searches, not yeah. just who's talking about the company, but who's talking about the company who also has some influence and who's talked about it, whatever, in the past 12 months. They come in, it's regimented. They know exactly how they're looking, what information they're looking for and how to find it. They get the information. They're out. Hmm. You know, that, I love that model of social media use. Uh, the problem is when you think of social media as, well, it's a time killer you know, this will be some entertainment. I don't really want to work. It's a distraction, man. It, it excels at that. It says, come on in. We'll keep you here for the next few hours. When you're instead saying like, there's, there's a few things I'm trying to monitor, a few things I care about. I get in and out in 15 minutes. I do it every other day. I do it on my desktop. And because of that, I know what's going on in this group. I know what's going on with this obscure topic. I know what's going on with these five people I care about. And I can only talk to them on social media. I know all of that. The footprint is an hour a week. That's where you start to get to that black belt." type level of yeah. really making the most in a minimalist fashion of these technologies without losing.
0: Hey friends, thanks as always for tuning into the Ziggler show. And I trust you're as enthralled as I am with Cal Newport's commentary here. What you're going to hear next is really my own admission of getting drawn into Instagram. And then I read a listener comment where a lady gave up games and cut her smartphone usage by 60%. She said, and when I asked her what she gained, she says, a productive life. Well, imagine what Cal has to say about this. Uh, you're going to hear that right after I share some great products and services from Ziggler's esteemed show sponsors. I realized it was Instagram that we started using for business and, you know, from per, on my and business of course, these days is not only your business, uh, social network uh, assets, but then people are going to check you out too. So your personal becomes business as well. So I started going down that road, got on Instagram and then realized when I would go in there to check it and I've got family, that was the big pull too. I've got some specific one side of the family and that's where they put I keep up with them there. So it was legitimate for that. And yet, you know, people start to follow you and other stuff comes in there and, and I just found that I was drawn. It took me a while to realize how much time and how much I enjoy looking at pictures and I'm looking at woodworking stuff and outdoor stuff and that I can do it. And I think, you know, it's reading your book. that I think that made me realize, Holy smokes, this, this is, I am, I am, I'm, is it an addiction? I mean, I, I am getting into this and realizing auditing myself, how much it can just pull me in. You know, let me read Becky Gash here. She says she deleted games off her phone and her screen time went down 60%. And I responded back to her and says, what was and asked, What was it taking away from? And she said simply a productive life. Now, for those who haven't read your book, digital minimalism, give us a little bit on that. Again, I know we covered a little bit of this in the main show, but of course this is a message we can't hear too much right now. As we're talking about this subject, just the gravity of what it really is, taking us away from maybe hit on that because I know we're talking a lot, we talk a lot about the anxiety that's causing in people and whatever, but what is it just what are we seeing it? I mean the, the ramifications have to be big. You're studying this thing. What is it taking us away from? Yeah and this is this was the big surprise of the whole project. I mean the, the whole project
1: was started because of the observation that for whatever reason people seemed uneasy all of a sudden mm-hmm. about their tech. And so why is this? And you know I had a pretty clear hypothesis going into it. I thought there's something about these apps that makes people anxious or uncomfortable, and so they want to spend less time being anxious and uncomfortable. That's what I thought was going on. You get into it, and you realize the real issue has very little to, to do with what's happening when they look at the phone. It was all about what it was keeping them away from. Huh. So the, the phones got so addictive and, and, and began taking up so much of people's time without them really noticing, because again, you download it for the innocent reason. I want to see the Instagram profile of my nephew. I'm just curious what he's up to, right? It's completely reasonable, innocent reasons. And they look up two years later and it's five hours a day, it's 50 hours a week or whatever it is. And so the thing that was making people uneasy is that it was crippling their ability to leave a satisfying, meaningful life. It was so much time out of their life and so much fragmentation of, of their attention that first of all, high quality leisure was gone, engagement with family way down, engagement with community way down. Uh, there's a, a huge uh, sort of group of support from within the religious communities. Uh, People were finding that religious engagement in their life way down. Contemplative prayer, church community, the types of things that were crucial to them to a life I'll live way down. And when you take these things out of your life that are hard, but meaningful, hard, but satisfying, and you replace it with a lot of the cheap games or Instagram or Fortnite or whatever it is you're doing, the net effect is you're impoverished. The quality of your daily experience is impoverished, and that's what the uneasiness was coming from. It's not that – I mean there are some people, of course, uh, who what they're doing on the phone makes them uncomfortable. There's young people that get really uncomfortable with the comparison to everyone's nicer life. If you're a journalist, I've discovered, especially in politics – Twitter is like an IV drip of terribleness into your <laughs> bloodstream. It's making them all miserable insomniacs. But, you know, for yeah. most people aren't doing that. Most people aren't on Twitter yelling at politicians. Yeah. Uh, most people after a certain age, you know, everyone has kids. Everyone's tired. No one really cares. If they're, or they're not posting pictures of themselves in bathing suits trying to look real nice. They're, just, you know, they're doing whatever they're doing is fine. It's the amount of time. Yeah. And so that uneasiness was coming from a sense of impoverishment. So that was the big surprise of this book is that I thought it was going to be a book about technology, but it actually has a lot less to do with technology than I thought. Uh, it's not about notifications or hacks and all that stuff is important, but that's, it's important because of what all these distractions are taking people away from. And this is your scene of those questions. You know, when people would go out and do these transformations and come back, this is what they're talking about what they started doing again in their offline life. That's the entire focus. I am happier because I'm doing this in my real life, this in my real life, this in my real life. Not, I'm happier because I no longer am exposed to this thing on my phone that made me sad.
0: And it's so blatant to me with my kids, for sure. So I've got five kids from the ages of seven to 14. And on the days, which we have many days, most, thank goodness now, that are no screens, you know, no screen days. When we don't do that, the little ones are out on the trampoline, they're off in the woods, they're making things up, they're doing all the things that kids are supposed to do. My older ones are writing uh lately is what they're doing a lot of a lot of writing, a lot of reading and then, you know, and then just literally game playing amongst the family. So that's incredible and we can look at that and I look at that and I go I feel you know that proud father moment but I can so easily then miss it for myself, especially. And here at the Ziegler audience, we have a majority of people who are doing some kind they're interacting. I say the vast majority are interact, interacting with some type of business online. That's always been my entryway into needing it. I, I, I didn't go to it for entertainment, but that's what opened the door. And now whether it's entertainment or even if it's just business, I man, I can spend the whole time looking at my peers in business, uh, trying to learn more about my business. Either way, I am not connected well, Here's one, uh, Shane Decoste. He says, I found, I had to set a limit for social media. It was a constant, a uh, constant go-to for any downtime and then became a distraction from live social interaction and family time. Now I spend my free time on reading podcasts and with my family. I mean that right there, there were times when we would, uh, my wife or I would come in and we've got one of us, maybe both of us and uh, three, four kids, whatever, all on a device. And it took that minute to step back and go, oh my gosh, we're those people. Uh, and it just, it creeps up. But that social interaction, that's the one that's gotten me How Even the the joke about, you know, standing in the Starbucks line. And I'm, I'm now trying to be, thanks to you, the one guy. And my, my smartphone is in my pocket. Now I can pull it out and check everything. Well, I've taken a lot of stuff off. So I don't have that much there now. But it's amazing how often I can go look at the weather um, or anything just to be looking at it. Because to not feels awkward. I'm that one psychopath standing there, I guess, like you not on the the cell phone. And it does, it feels a little uncomfortable. I'm trying to find pride in that. Now I think I can do that, but you still feel a little odd. And it takes away from that eye contact, but you don't make anymore. That's that meme. I think I saw is when you think everybody's looking at you, don't worry. They're not, they're looking at their smartphone.
1: Yeah. Uh, You get, you get used to it and, and, and then it becomes uh, addictive in itself because you feel so much better. So, you know, I was just doing a, an interview down by Union Station here in D.C., and so I was going to pick up the metro at Union Station, but I hadn't eaten lunch, so I said, well, let me, let me grab lunch at one of the restaurants there. And I had a magazine, so I remember that, but, you know, I was reading a magazine. It was a really interesting article, and I, I sat and I had a nice lunch, and I I read that magazine article. That was probably that, – that probably had a, an incredibly beneficial effect to my sort of psychological state, mm-hmm. sort of slow down, Get yeah, caught up an interesting story, enjoy the food, you know, talk to the waiter, see what's going on. It's a busy train station. It's kind of interesting. It just slows everything down. Uh, except for, again, for someone from 10 years ago, when it seemed like that slowing everything down, though it seemed yeah. like, well, that's just what the normal thing is. It's what we've done is we've sped everything up. And, and that's the point I made last time I was on the show is that the thing that is weird about our current world is how often people are looking at their phones. We have to remember that, again, a time traveler from 10 years ago brought to today, this would be the number one thing they would notice. Why is everyone looking at their phones? It's that recent that we were retrained to feel like we are air traffic controllers. It's just a really arbitrary thing. So I I keep shifting that frame. What a weird behavior everyone's doing suddenly, looking at these little black and and, uh, glass and metal rectangles all the time. That's really weird. I mean, That's different than what we've done for the, for the, the last hundred years. And so it's really just about going back to the way that we all, uh, used to experience the world. So it's very normal and it it feels pretty familiar pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. I saw again, something somewhere, somebody posted on this topic of, uh, kids when we were kids and you ate your cereal and you either talked to your sibling or your mom and dad, or you read the cereal box. And, uh, you know, how many times can you read the ingredients on the, whatever you're eating? I remember that well, yeah. the Kid cereal that had the
1: activities on the back was always a big win. (laughs) Or the McDonald's Happy Meal box, I remember that. You would go around the sides of the Happy Meal box. There was little activities and mazes, so you had something to read. Yeah,
0: and things of interest, which they don't exist at this point because why – why would they? Here's, uh, here's another one. Claudia Espinosa. She says, I took all social media apps off, which again, I got I to give kudos to, it was Mike Hyatt that got me connected with you. And it was him in, in the talk I did with him talking about, he did that as well. He took all his social media apps off because they were such a pull to him. I did soon after as well, but... Claudia here, she says, I find that my phone screen intake has dropped dramatically. My mood improved. My productivity increased as a result. I love having a smartphone, but I'm not sure it's worth the cost. I really wonder if I just have it because of the social uh, status symbol. She says, I am vain, uh, or if it brings any real benefit. Most of my usage now is for podcasts, GPS, video calls, and books and audiobooks. That's yeah. It. I mean, there's
1: almost no reason to have social media on your phone. Again, unless you own a lot of stock in one of these companies, right? There's, there's almost no use case for social media. And there's plenty of valid use cases where I do X with this social media platform and get real value out of it. But there's plenty of u- use cases like that. Almost none of them require you to have it on your phone. Now, wow. this was actually what helped fuel Instagram's rapid rise is part of what made Instagram insidious is that it was all about posting photos, well, where do you take your photos? You take them on the phone, so you needed the app on the phone because that 's where you take the photo and and how else were you going to get the photo up so it, it could it could plant on your phone and and you'd take the photo and then you 'd go to the upload it yeah. I, think, well, I might as well look while i 'm here, so it really boosted up their engagement numbers. But I've met some people in the, again, in the health industry, but more in the physical fitness where, you know, you have to post lots of Instagram photos of your muscles, that type of world. And they were really struggling with this. Right. And their hack was they use GoPro cameras and they take their pictures with nice cameras and they say, I now wait till I get home and I upload the pictures off the camera and upload it to Instagram through the browser. It's a little bit more of a pain, but for them it was worth it because that was the last thing that had them actually tying social media to their phone. And so I tell people, you know, dumb down that smartphone, go back to the way the smartphones were in the early days, of the iPhones, 90% of your problems will be gone, right? There's almost no reason to have it on their phone, unless you really want to devote a lot of your attention to those companies. Just use it on your browser. Uh-huh. Use it. Not every day. You know, it's fine. Go check your Facebook group on on your browser on Wednesdays or whatever you need to do. It's fine. You don't need it on the phone. So a lot of people have that same experience. You get it off the phone and suddenly your relationship, like Michael Hyatt talks about, your relationship with these devices completely changes.
0: That's so interesting. I'm sure you've heard this one too. I've done this, though I can't say it was out of a this focal point necessarily as much as it just was seeking in or seeking efficiency in my own business. And it was taking that picture or doing that screenshot, doing one of an interview like this. And then I now send it to an assistant and I'll write out, Hey, here's what I want you to put. She puts it on Facebook. She puts it on Instagram. She puts it on Twitter, Uh, about the only thing that I'm doing now is on Facebook, posting the questions like I do for these Q and A's. I'll go post that. And then I have somebody come back as well and accumulate all the answers and post them for me. So from an efficiency standpoint, it was great. But then it also gave me pretty much no reason to have to go on there. Not saying I never do, but I don't have to. Well, a lot of famous people who have big social media presences
1: are doing exactly that. Okay. It's, it's another thing that's not known as much. You see the big athlete or the, the big movie star and you're like, wow, they're on there. Look, they're on there. They're tweeting. They have a 3 million followers or this or that. A lot of them, they, they don't touch it. Yeah, You know, they have a staff. They have people who take the pictures. There's a, there's a schedule, their agency, their PR firm is handling it. Uh, so you, you get the sense of everyone who's anyone is on here all the time. But a lot of people who are at higher levels are doing what you're talking about, which is Okay. There's a lot of people on here and it's useful for me to see what I'm doing. That's great. But I'm not like I'm LeBron James. I, I got to be practicing. I got to get my, my, my head in the game or whatever. Yeah. So my PR firm is going to make sure there's five posts a day and I don't want to think about it.
0: Well, here you started off talking about what is practical or be going from practical to practically unlivable, you know, uh, relatively at least. So Jody Tootin here says, I have never bought a smartphone. And I responded back, I said, wow, and you know, tongue in cheek, are you actually, and you actually exist in today's culture. And uh, they responded back, we're a bit weird. I know, but it works for us. We really have no need for instant stuff. Flip phones are great for making phone calls and we use the internet at home. Why have it at my fingertips? And I have heard, especially during this conversation, since our first interview with you, Cal, and I think some people, and I, I'm probably not going to get to them all, but there are some people who are questioning, should I just get rid of it? And I, I feel like I hear your answer being, it, it's, it's not going to hurt you. It's a, it's yeah. a convenient, is it anything more? I mean, we existed, you and I as kids and growing up, we did not have these things. We did not die. It was a little bit of my feeling, even in looking at my own kids, do they really need any of this stuff? Granted, I guess there's not a pay phone to use, but at this point, you can just say, look, your buddy, everybody has a smartphone. Use theirs and call me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I learned
1: after this book came out that there are a lot of people who never bought smartphones. I think they were hmm. just shy to talk about it. Hmm. They felt eccentric. I, I had never met them, but then after the book came out, they felt more emboldened, and I hear from tons of people. Uh, they use they use what's called feature phones, which is basically just the phones we used in two thousand five. Yeah, I mean they're a little bit nicer now, but you know you, you can you can make phone calls, you can do text messaging on them. Uh, they're small. Oh, the battery lasts like a week too. <laughs> it's great <laughs> uh, because the battery technology has gotten incredibly good. Because as the iPhones and and Nokia, as all these smartphones got more and more powerful. They've had to really innovate the battery technology to keep the same level of charge. So to keep a phone that's charged all day, uh, a modern iPhone sucks up massively more power than, let's say, a 2007 iPhone. Now, to us, it seems like the battery technology has stayed the same because the battery life is the same. But when you keep in mind that the battery consumption has been getting a lot higher, these batteries are incredibly powerful now. So you take one of these, you put it back in a 2005-era phone, you basically never have to charge it. So wow. that's, a, that's another benefit. Uh, but people are fine. Like, it's great. I can, you know, people can text. I can text, uh, I'm running late, you know, the thing that, that is really convenient. I'm running late or what have you, or call, uh, you know, call for a reservation. Um, and it's mainly fine. And then they have their tablet. And, and this was another thing I talked about in the book is that portable electronics have gotten small enough now that the original use case for the smartphone has really gone away. I mean, it used to be. I had a giant brick laptop yeah. and that was it. And there was no Wi-Fi. And, and so a smartphone, if you're in a business user, was was incredibly liberating because now, you know, you're at the airport and you can send off an email message or you can check in on this or that. But but now, you know, these you can have a, a netbook that's the size of a little legal pad or a tablet that can pa- practically fit in your pocket, which can log right into that Wi-Fi. So when you need to change your flight on United when it's canceled or something, you can yeah. still do it. Um, so the use case that you need to squeeze that down into a phone has really gone away. So anyways, my, my, my point there is that if you are considering getting rid of a smartphone altogether and place it with a simpler phone, you are not alone. There are lots and lots of people who have done it and they're fine. There's, there's inconveniences sometimes. Um, but man, their life is slower and they're happier. You can yeah. tell it. I, they come, some of them come to my events. Uh, they, they like to show me their phones. Um, does fun. So I like to see the phones, man, you can just tell. Just, it's just a little bit more relaxed. Like when they're somewhere, they're somewhere. Okay, I'm waiting for the talk to begin. Like this, maybe I'll talk to the person next to me. I'm just here. There's nothing for me to look at. You know, uh,
0: it's 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 uh, nice to see. It's I notice it. I just notice it, and it's it's not across the board. But I uh, I notice it in meetings. Yesterday, I had the privilege of sitting uh, across the table, had lunch with uh, Pete Vargas. Uh, just an incredible, incredible guy that we interviewed not long ago. And he ne- we both had smartphones. We both had them on the table just because we set them there and set a journal there, stuff that we were writing, keeping notes, and never once looked at it. I noticed that he never looked at it. And it helped me not look at mine, even though it vibrated a couple of times. And I'm hoping that it's not a kid in the ER or anything like that. And I just kept eye contact, but I notice it. And I notice, yeah, the peace and the ease as opposed to, and we've all done this as well. If we're not, if we're not that person ourselves, the person who just can't, you can tell it's there. You can tell that, that, that look, you know, just like the person who used to look at their, their watch all the time. And it feels disrespectful for one, obviously. Uh, But I notice those who are at peace, as you said.
1: And it makes you anxious. I mean, we all know it. Just think about it. Just the pulling it out, the looking, scrolling, the doing whatever, you feel it immediately. It makes you anxious. It feels bad.
0: And there folks, I'll let you know, if you want to go to, if you, you shouldn't go, if you end up on Facebook and need to, uh, but on this question that I posted, there's so many incredible, uh, tactics that people use from getting rid of everybody. They didn't really know on Facebook and just, you know, keeping track of the people they really know and, and, and just downsizing there. A lot of them turning the notifications off, all the notifications, all the sounds, all those types of things, a lot of tactics there, uh, that you can look at that's really confirming. I think if anything, it'll help you Yeah, feel not weird that you're not the person that's addicted to it. But I did want to, before we're done, ask a question. It's really a personal curiosity. And I read digital minimalism. I don't know if I skipped over this part or if you didn't have it in there, but did you, or have you paid much attention just to the aspect of the phones and all the tracking mechanisms and the data collection aspects of them that are, you know, there's privacy issues or just tracking issues. I mean, I'm, I'm very aware that if I ever do anything wrong, uh, I am going to be the most easily found out person on the planet, whether it's social media or just Gmail, I do everything on there. None of that is super secure that I know of. And if anybody wants to figure out what I'm doing, I am known. And some people really struggle with that. I know people in the security world who have shun that stuff. And what am I in danger of anything? Do you worry about that? Is it an issue? So
1: I, I didn't talk about it in the book on purpose. Okay. Right now these are, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're issues, right? I mean, uh, it's Orwellian the degree to which you are being monitored and reduced to vectors of data points that can be used to optimize sales targeting, uh, to, to build a model around you, a predictive model that allows them to figure out exactly what you might buy or not buy or what type of information to show to you. There's also, yep, big privacy concerns. This this information could be hacked. It could be released. It could be subpoenaed. There there, there are concerns to having so much of your life actually Documented and captured and held by a third party. There's also content creator concerns. If you're a content creator, they own everything. Yeah. So, you know, Nicholas Carr used the term "digital sharecropping," was kind of what's going on. You're producing all this content for them. They own it. They're making money off of it. You're making pennies, if anything. But I didn't talk a lot about it because what I've noticed is this has become part of the social media company's PR strategy. That. They are trying to put the attention on those issues. Now, this is starting about a couple years ago. They say, okay, these are the problems. Privacy, uh, data portability, content censorship and moderation. Okay, this is what all the problems are. So let's get into it. We can try to fix this. We're going to do end-to-end encryption. We're going to do these technical things. We're going to throw a lot of, of, of jumble at you. Why did they make that the issue? Because that's something they can talk about and do something about. But what's the issue I hear everyone talk about when I'm on the road and I'm talking to people why they're dissatisfied? It's not data portability or privacy. It's I'm looking at the phone too much.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I'm addicted. I'm looking at this all the time. It's taking me away from my life. It's taking me away from my kids. The social media companies do not want that to be the narrative because they can't do anything about it. That's the business model. Privacy. Oh, they can do something about it. And in fact, they'll do some things. You won't even understand what it is because, because cryptography is complicated and there'll be in legislation. It'll be this big complicated back and forth and like, okay, we, we now have a commission and we have encryption and blah, 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 blah. Um, and there's action happening, you know, that's fine. They want that to be the narrative because they can do things there without hurting their bottom line. And so there's a lot of people talking about it. and I've been called out on this a, a bunch of times in the national media in particular, that I'm not focusing on these big sort of systemic issues. And I'm focusing too much, I've been accused of, on the individual and how you the for individual that. negatively and what the individual can do. And they say, yeah. why aren't you talking about the systemic things? Why aren't you talking about this and that? And, and the reason is, is because... The individual issues are the big ones, and you can fix it tomorrow. Huh. And I don't know what there's, – there's a lot of legislation out there. Uh, good luck, I guess. I mean, uh, you, you can try to legislate some of these things, and maybe you'll get some improvements, but it's not going to come close to the improvement of someone doing a declutter, taking the apps off their phone, saying enough is enough. You know, there, there's a new piece of legislation. I think Senator Hawley is, has uh, introduced a piece of legislation to somehow legislate social media companies that they're not allowed to make their apps addictive. I mean, I don't know how you legislate that. You know, it's, it's like, it's impossible to capture, you know, and, and so, uh, and not to go off on, on too much of a thing on this, but basically I feel like those issues are really well covered and what's being criminally undercovered is what is the effect on individuals and the quality of their life and what can they do right now to make that better? Because that's right now where I think there's, there's a lot of big swings. So certainly don't ignore those issues because they're real, um, don't take my silence on these issues as meaning that I don't think they're important, Yeah, but it's more, uh, I want to, I'm, I'm fighting right now in this very narrow band of the problem that I think has the broadest possible positive impacts, which is all of that matters. But for most people, the thing that matters the most is they're looking at their hand instead of looking at their kid, not what's the data policy, not what's the content moderation policy, not is there data portability if I want to shift between platforms. It's the, I spent five hours looking at this stupid piece of metal Uh instead of my community, my kids, my hobbies, my life, my job. And so that's why I've, I've remained, if you've noticed, I've been pretty focused
0: on those particular issues. That's why. Uh, And I'm in favor of it. And that's why you're here for the third time in a short amount of time. And, you know, and I do want to, I do want you to give uh, one more commentary before we end off here, because we're talking about what we're doing and what we would be better off to do. But just to give again, open our eyes. I know you write about this. We talked about this a little bit, but there, you know, we go to the root issue of why are we doing that. I mean, again, health and wellness. And we look at why are we with as much as we know, why are we, I'm going to say medicating with food, with drink, with, with drugs, with media, why are we, you know, this this is another medication. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put that to you because, because then you come into, why are we so prone to do that? Why am I not at peace to look off and have a, a a rare moment or have a, a normal moment of just nothing? Of, of just thinking, of boredom, of whatever? Why are we drawn into these things?
1: Well, I think there's two forces. So the big one that I think we that surprises a lot of people when they hear about is the degree to which, uh, essentially, we were re-engineered to be this way. Right. So again, we, we look back, like we talked about in the last okay. episode, that, that you look yeah. back to the early years of social media and the iPhone, people did not look at their phones all the time. It was not fundamental to technology. They had Facebook accounts. They had iPhones. They didn't look at their phones that much. Why do we now look at phones all the time? Again, you can trace that back roughly to the Facebook IPO where they had to figure out how do we get the user revenue numbers up? We have to get people to look at their phones more. And the entire social media experience, starting with Facebook but then percolating out to all of these other apps that make money off your attention, they all re-engineered to offer these experiences of intermittent reinforcement of social approval indicators, which is irresistible. So we were retrained – To look at our phone all the time. That model of using our phone was not organic. It was not emergent. It wasn't something that was fulfilling a very specific need. We were essentially trained to do that because it was going to allow some stock issues to be successful. And so that's a huge part of it. Then we have the other part, which I think is what you're alluding to, which is that there's probably, and I'm not an expert on this, but there there seems to be the last 20 years in particular, uh, a cultural issue where people feel increasingly ungrounded as standard institutions, um, you know, the, the old model that had its flaws, but the old model where maybe you would stay in the town where you grew up. And you would, you would get married at 21 and you would live down the street from your parents and you would work at the same factory that your dad worked at and that you would be a part of the Rotary Club or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, the, the, the older structures which had their issues, a lot of this, as that degrades, people are, are left more adrift trying to figure out, well, what am I all about? What am I grounded in? So that's also really ripe territory for someone to come along and say just – and again, drink served the same purpose back in the early 20th century. There's a reason why prohibition came along. For someone to come along now and say during this particular disruption, we can distract you from any of that. These existential concerns of, well, what am I about? Who is in my life? Who am I sacrificing on behalf of? Who do I care about? Who cares about me? This is all scary. I'm kind of adrift. I'm figuring this out on my own, which is very hard. Hey, I can ignore all of that by looking down at the screen. Mm-hmm. And the screen has been engineered to be able to offer you as much as you want, it, as much as you want to eat. So we have these two forces. There's the cultural psychological forces, which I'm not very qualified to talk about, but we all sort of feel that's out there. And then there's the technical reengineering forces, which I do know a lot about, which was the arbitrary nature in which the experience of our interaction with the phone was changed for very specific purposes. The goal was to get us to look at it as much as possible. And they were very good at it. And that worked really well. So you put those two things together, and people who bought, you know, they saw the iPod commercials in the, in the early 2000s of people dancing, like, this is great, I yeah. can have an iPod on my phone, and and, and send a picture to my, my wife or something like that. They're looking up 10 years later and just completely glued to this thing. And it's, it's manipulating their emotions. They're not doing anything else. And they're miserable. You know, those
0: are the type of forces that made that happen. We could do the follow-up book for you, Digital Prohibition. What do you think? (laughs) It's it's a, it's a movement. I, you know, thank you, uh, Cal. This is uh, like, I started off the show with, I've had my uh, two teen boys read digital minimalism. Now my wife is reading it. It's just stuck with me since we've talked. I've become so much more aware of it myself and yeah, just what it's taking away from. And I think the biggest thing yeah, is just that piece and that calm, it's a deep breath to stand in line at Starbucks and just look around to contemplate something, to look at people. You might as well, cause they're not looking at you. Uh, it's free no. game to, to people watch these days. And it's, I just didn't, I, I didn't realize it. I'm just so grateful that you have brought this to our awareness, which is my favorite thing to pursue is awareness. I want to be aware of what I'm not seeing, what I'm not hearing. Uh, thank you. And thanks again for coming back and just giving us a, a live coaching session like this. I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. And, and I think that's the, the point I keep coming back to uh, about minimalism is, uh, as you said, minimalism is not about minimizing for the sake of minimizing. It's about emphasizing the things you care about. Hmm. And so just the, the, the knock in that point, it's not that technology is bad or the, you know, these particular technologies is bad, but the, the point is how do you use them? How do you use them? You figure out what you're all about. You figure out what you care about. And then you strategically deploy tech in ways that gives you big wins and then be happy ignoring the rest. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that is what the, ma- the magic of the Internet is someone, for example, could be a part of your community yeah. who maybe lives nowhere near you or nowhere near uh, anyone else who's in your community. They live sort of in the middle of nowhere. Maybe they're on deployment overseas. You know, that's the magic of the Internet using tech to support things you value. The downside is when it becomes mindless. And so, you know, I I guess I'll, I'll leave it on that note is the tech. I'm a computer scientist. I love tech. But it's really messy to figure out how to get tech to support instead of subvert the things you care about. So as long as we keep thinking about that, we keep fighting with it, we keep grappling and keep starting from the question of what do I want to do with my life? What matters? What am I all about? Keep starting with that question. And then turn and look at this digital toolbox and say, "What needs to be in here?" If you do that again and again and again, uh, you're going to end up you're going to end up fine.
0: That, that mindless—that's what haunts me right there. That mindless. What amount of my day do I want to spend mindless with my brain and my life on idle? That's the one that sticks in me. Again, thanks for bringing it to the forefront, Cal. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, there you go, friends. Brilliant insight and counsel from Cal Newport. Again, find him and more of what he has to offer at calnewport.com. What's coming up next? I'll tell you right after I thank our show sponsors. Coming up next in episode 709, secure your day by saving your morning. I mean, we just can't hear it enough. The quality and routine of our morning is the primary indicator of our success for the day. Yet the fact remains that the majority of people, even aspiring people like the Ziegler show listeners here, Do not have a healthy routine that starts every morning. In show 707, I brought you Hal Elrod, best-selling phenomenon of the book, The Miracle Morning. In this show, we walk through the seven spokes of the Ziegler Wheel of Life with Hal and hear his personal habits for success. He has some significant, unique habits in all areas, but it's hard not to highlight what he cited for the mental spoke, number three, and his routine that he has coined the savers, silence, affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, and scribing. This is what he attributes his primary success to. I mean, folks, I've had a solid morning routine for a couple years now, but Hal has inspired me to more because I want even more out of my day. Well, till then, thank you for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.